content warning. The following episode includes discussion of transphobia, anti-LGBTQ bigotry and violence, depression, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Three days after Christmas in 2014, 17-year-old Leela Alcorn, who lived in suburban Cincinnati, had lost hope. She was a high schooler who had come out as a gay male at 14 as a stepping stone to eventually accepting and coming out as a trans girl. While her classmates at King's High School accepted this, her parents were horrified As conservative Christians, they believed that homosexuality and gender nonconformity were sins, and they could not accept that their child was gay or transgender. So they sent Leela to gay conversion therapy, which seemed to cause more harm than good. Leela wanted to transition physically from male to female. But her parents would not allow it. They still held out hope that their child, their son, would grow out of it and become the kind of young man they envisioned. But that wasn't who she was. Having become despondent, Leela posted a letter to social media on a timer so it would post after she already went through with what she was about to do. She walked to I-71 in nearby Lebanon and stepped into an oncoming semi-truck. She died by suicide. Unfortunately, Leela's parents couldn't even find it in them to honor their daughter's wishes upon her death, deadnaming her in the media, stating, quote, We don't support that religiously, end quote. Deadnaming is the use of a transgender person's dead name, the name they are given at birth, instead of the name they have chosen to better reflect their identity. Lila's parents even used her dead name, Joshua, on her gravestone. Despite her parents' refusal to accept that their daughter was transgender, many other people did speak up for her and for the pain she and others who are transgender but not accepted endure. Leela's death raised awareness both in the Cincinnati region and internationally of anti-transgender bigotry and the harm done by conversion therapy. This tragedy led to the city of Cincinnati and later other localities in the area banning conversion therapy. Within the Bible, Jesus talks about the things that bear good fruit and bad fruit. Driving a child who wanted to be who she was to end her life cannot be good fruit. And as I'm going to talk about in today's episode, bigotry against people based on gender identity, leading to alienation from family and friends, depression and suicide cannot be good fruit. No matter how Christians who use the Bible to justify their anti-LGBTQ beliefs attempt to defend it. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pat Stirrer Podcast. 
This is the last part of a two-part series focused on the question, can you be Christian in affirming of people who are LGBTQ? Affirming meaning we fully accept queer people for who they are, including their sexual orientation or gender identity. The first part of the series was focused on sexual orientation, while this episode is focused on gender identity, including people who are transgender, non-binary, or genderqueer. Oftentimes, sexual orientation and gender identity are addressed together. The acronyms LGBTQ, LGBT, LGBTIA, LGBTQIA, or LGBTQ+, are examples of that, and oftentimes non-affirming arguments blend them together haphazardly. But while there are shared experiences among LGBTQ people, there are also differences and complexities unique to gender identity or sexual orientation, and because of that, it made sense, at least in my mind, to address them in separate episodes. When I talk about transgender and non-binary people, I'm talking about people whose gender identity does not align with their assigned sex at birth. Usually, assigned sex at birth is based in biology. Females have XX chromosomes and males have XY chromosomes. But the scientific reality of biology is not that simple. While most people's sex chromosomes can be classified as XX or XY, that is not always the case. People who are intersex often do not fit in these classifications. Intersex refers to people who are born with chromosomal and or physical characteristics that do not match up with the male-female dichotomy. While there is more recognition of intersex by science than in generations past, and a greater push to protect them from corrective surgeries performed on them without their consent, intersex people are still generally assigned a sex at birth based on their sex chromosomes or how they present physically, and they're socialized according to that assigned sex. Most do not feel a disconnect between their gender identity and assigned sex, though up to 20% of intersex people do feel that disconnect, also known as gender dysphoria. There is a difference between intersex and transgender. Intersex refers to people whose physical or chromosomal features don't fit into the XX female or XY male box. Transgender refers to people whose gender identity does not match up to their assigned sex at birth. While people can be both intersex and transgender, most transgender people are not intersex and most intersex people are not transgender. These are separate identities. Most transgender people were assigned a sex at birth based on characteristics and chromosomes that were not ambiguous. But how trans people see themselves and their gender, gender meaning sex in reference to what it means socially and culturally, how they identify does not match up to the sex they have been assigned. And so many seek to express their true gender identity openly, which is called transitioning. And they do so in different ways. Some choose medical options, including hormones or surgical procedures or a combination of both. Others either do not feel the desire to go that route for any number of reasons, 
or don't have access to these options because of finances or legal barriers. Other ways trans people may choose to express their true gender identity openly may be through changing the way they dress or groom themselves, changing the pronouns they use for themselves, or by changing their name to one that best reflects who they are. Where available, trans people may have legal documents like their driver's license or birth certificate changed to better reflect their gender identity. When we talk about gender identity outside of cisgender, meaning gender identity and assigned sex at birth are one and the same, there's transgender, but there are also other ways that people understand and identify in terms of gender. Non-binary refers to people whose gender identity either blends aspects of man and woman or don't include either gender category. People who are non-binary may be referred to by other names, such as gender nonconformist. Like trans people, non-binary people feel the disconnect between their assigned sex at birth and their gender identity, but unlike most who are trans who identify with a specific gender. Non-binary people are not tied to the man-woman dichotomy and what that typically represents. And the idea of gender identity outside of a cisgender binary based on dichotomous at birth assigned sex is not a new concept. Many non-European cultures have historically had concepts of a third gender or expanded genders besides men and women. Ancient Mediterranean and Northern African groups, such as the ancient Sumerians, Egyptians, Babylonians, and Assyrians, described people who were classified as neither male nor female. Third gender can also be found in ancient Indian religious traditions, as well as Inca, Aztec, Mayan, and many Native American tribal traditions. Though what constituted the third gender or genders varied. In much of Sub-Saharan Africa, gender was not treated as binary and permanent until European colonization, which emphasized patriarchy and rigid gender roles. Gender in the Dagaba tribe of Ghana, Burkina Faso, and Cote d'Ivoire was not based on genitalia or physical features, but on energy. Similarly, gender in the Igbo of Nigeria and the Mabuti of Central Africa is assigned later at life, not at birth. Transgender shamans are still a feature in Lagbara and Zulu tribes, and many Eastern African tribes have historically acknowledged and embraced transgender people. The violent anti-LGBTQ sentiment in a number of African countries today can be attributed in a large part to the vestiges of Western colonial rule. Even within the culture the Bible was originally written in, there were people referred to as eunuchs. Our modern definition of eunuch would be a man who has been castrated. But the meaning of this term in ancient times did have several meanings and not all of them meant castrated men. The lives of trans and non-binary people and how their lives are addressed both politically and religiously, in particular by the most dominant religious faith in the U.S., Christianity, truly matter a great deal. The Republican Party and the Trump administration have launched an all-out assault on the very existence 
of people who are transgender and non-binary. Over the past several years, state-level GOP legislators in several states, such as Virginia and Texas, have attempted to enact bathroom bills, which would restrict public restroom usage to the restroom that corresponds to an individual's sex at birth or assigned per their birth certificate. North Carolina passed a bathroom bill in 2016, which not only barred trans people from using restrooms corresponding to their gender identity, but also preempted anti-discrimination ordinances in place by localities and gave the state exclusive right over minimum wage. So it was pretty much a way for the North Carolina Republicans to screw over transgender people and execute a power play on cities such as Charlotte that were represented by Democrats. Once the bill was enacted, come to find out, there was a lot of confusion over enforcement, and it was even acknowledged by one of the bill's co-sponsors that there were no enforcement provisions in the bathroom law. Many municipalities expressed that they were unwilling to devote police resources to patrol bathrooms for offenders. Due to high-profile boycotts, travel bans to North Carolina from other states, the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, a compromise bill was passed that removed the specific bathroom provisions while retaining the other aspects of the original law, such as keeping local communities from enacting their own anti-discrimination provisions and the state control of minimum wage. The last I could find on the fate of the bill is a lawsuit going through the courts being brought against the state by several trans plaintiffs that would allow them to sue the state over anti-discrimination. As an additional casualty of the bathroom bill, this is said to have led to the defeat of Republican Governor Pat McCrory by Democrat Roy Cooper, who used the bathroom bill as a part of his campaign. Supporters of the bathroom bills argue that the bills are needed to protect their wives and children from men who are pretending to be women, which is pretty much fear-mongering, plus a gross misunderstanding of what it means to be transgender. But the fact is that trans people are much more likely to be assaulted in restrooms than those the bathroom bills have been created to protect. The Trump administration has advocated for the redefinition of gender to refer strictly to the sex individuals are assigned at birth, deliberately not acknowledging people who are transgender. According to the New York Times and The Guardian, the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, has made an effort across a number of federal departments to establish a legal definition of sex under Title IX, which is the federal law prohibiting discrimination based on sex, tend to hear about it a lot in reference to colleges and universities. The definition would be male or female, binary and permanent, determined by the genitalia the individual is born with. This Trump administration move would reverse the Obama administration's expansion of trans rights. Trump rolling back Obama's progress seems to be par for the course these days. My eyes are rolling so hard. But that's not all the Trump administration has done. The current administration has also banned trans people from military service and rolled back guidelines to public schools recommending trans students be allowed to use the restroom that corresponds to their gender identity. As part of this rollback, the Department of Education announced last year 
that it is no longer investigating civil rights complaints from trans students who are kept from using student restrooms that match their gender identity. While Trump has gone after a number of marginalized groups during his presidency, his actions harming transgender people seem very targeted. As in the case of Leela Alcorn, gay conversion therapy, which has been shown to be extremely harmful to those who endure it, is often used to reinforce a non-affirming stance towards genderqueer identities. While 16 states, plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, as well as localities such as Cincinnati, New York City, Denver, Miami, Pittsburgh, and Seattle, are beginning to outlaw conversion therapy, most states and localities permit it. On a federal level, the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, which would have prohibited conversion therapy, was introduced in the House of Representatives by Representative Ted Lieu of California in 2015, but was unsuccessful in being passed. The fact that the GOP and the Trump administration have targeted LGBTQ people in discriminatory policy as part of their efforts at catering to their white evangelical base. Such a bill becoming a law at this point in time is highly, highly unlikely, at least in the near future. This also matters within Christianity, because despite what many non-affirming Christians believe, transgender and non-binary people are part of the church. Some have transitioned and live as their true gender identity, while others have not publicly come out as trans or non-binary. As I've talked about in previous episodes, religion often serves as core to the way people understand their world and themselves, and it serves to provide comfort and support. But if there is a lack of support or outright condemnation, religious trauma can result. According to an article in Sojourners, 1.4 million adults identify as transgender, and 66% of transgender people have belonged to a faith community at some time in their lives. But one out of five Christian trans people have left the faith due to rejection. In a qualitative study by Yarhouse and Carr, Christian trans women participants corroborated this statistic with their experiences. From the article, here's one of their stories. Quote, Churches tend to kick me out. I love Jesus Christ with all my heart and have been a Christian for over half a century. But churches tend to be very judgmental. I usually tend to stay home because I am not wanted in churches. So I listen to sermons over the internet and worship God privately using very carefully chosen reverent music. End quote. Here is another experience shared in the journal article. Quote, I once explained to a pastor in a previous church my transgender situation, and he rejected me totally. He said it was something that he could not cope with, so I have kept quiet about it ever since in subsequent churches, as I would not wish to hurt those who cannot cope with who I am. End quote. Acceptance in faith communities can be a deeply meaningful and positive experience for trans people. From another trans woman in the article, quote, Churches since transition have been accepting and have integrated me into the life and structure of the congregation. 
I now serve as lay leader and also member of annual conference for my congregation. They accept me as female, which is what I am and what I present. End quote. In part one of this series, I stated that conservative stances on sexual orientation, while a focus for evangelical Christians, is not limited to them, but are also held by a number of other Christian traditions, including the Roman Catholic Church, the mainline denominations, and many Black Protestant denominations. Gender identity is similar. While the quality of life of trans people and people who are non-binary are most under threat politically by white evangelicals, conservative views on gender identity are not strictly held by evangelicals. While mainline Protestant denominations tend to be the most accepting of the major Christian traditions in the United States, this acceptance is not universal among mainline Protestant churches. Roman Catholicism does not recognize transgender people as part of their official doctrine, and many black Protestant churches and leaders hold anti-trans views. This is actually a pretty huge deal. I mean, all of it is a big deal, but 55% of Latinos in the U.S. are Roman Catholic, while another 16% are evangelical, and 53% of black Americans are part of historically black Protestant churches, while another 14% are evangelical. The black church has a great deal of social, political, and cultural influence in the black community, even among those who don't go to church. And while civil rights groups such as the NAACP and Black Lives Matter have opposed the North Carolina bathroom bill, some of the bill's more vocal supporters have been black pastors. Much like evangelicalism, many black churches also adopt patriarchal beliefs. And pro-patriarchy stances usually include rigid gender roles and a great deal of gender-related gatekeeping. And this is one of the reasons why the lives of trans people, and trans people of color in particular, are all too often under threat. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, over one in four transgender people have faced assault based on anti-trans bigotry and the rates are higher for trans women and trans people of color. Last year, according to the Human Rights Campaign, at least 27 trans people were killed in the U.S., including Roxana Hernandez, a trans woman who came to the U.S. to seek asylum in hopes of escaping anti-trans bigotry and violence in her native Honduras, only to die while in the custody of ICE, suspected of having been beaten and killed. The year before, in 2017, 29 trans people were killed. Of the victims who died in 2018, all but one were trans women, and all but one were people of color. And since 2013, there have been 128 killings of trans people in 87 cities across 32 states, 80% of whom are trans people of color. These may not seem like huge numbers, but we have to consider a couple of factors. Trans people are estimated to constitute only 0.7% of the U.S. population. Also, these are only confirmed cases. A huge challenge in getting an accurate count is that police departments, media outlets, and families may misgender victims. So it is difficult for pro-LGBTQ and human rights watchdog groups 
to identify trans victims. The lives of trans and non-binary people matter. The threat is real. The bigotry is deadly. Like part one of the Christian and Affirming series, when I discuss sexual orientation, I feel part two is important. We need to talk about gender identity because of the importance of affirming the lives of trans and non-binary people. The question is, can a person be a Bible-believing Christian and affirm the lives of trans and non-binary people? And can you be a Bible-believing Christian and trans or non-binary? Yes, yes you can. This episode is really for the people who might be open to thinking more deeply about what the Bible says when it comes to these issues and exploring if a person can be a Bible-believing Christian and affirming. And that ties into if someone can be a Bible-believing Christian and trans. And like in the last episode when we talked about sexual orientation, when it comes to gender identity, you might be a Christian yourself exploring these issues or may have been a Christian at some point and are deconstructing. And either way, you're wondering about this question. When non-affirming Christians refer to the Bible to support their position, the verses used are typically referred to as the clobber verses. There are around six passages in the Bible typically used in opposition to homosexuality, which I addressed in part one. But when non-affirming Christians refer to the Bible to oppose gender identity outside of cisgender, the biblical evidence is even more scant. There are all of two passages in the Bible that are typically used. The first one is in Genesis, and it states, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27 For non-affirming Christians, the passage in the first book, first chapter of the Bible is the basis for their understanding of sex and gender for all time. The conservative religious group Focus on the Family included this in their statement on what they derisively call transgenderism. Quote, Focus on the Family is dedicated to defending the inherent honor, dignity, value, and equality of the two sexes as created in God's image, potentially male and female each bringing unique and complementary qualities to sexuality and relationships. Each of the two sexes is a glorious gift from God. Our sexuality is meant to be offered back to Him, either in complementary unity with the opposite sex, in the context of marriage for procreation, in mutual delight, or in celibacy for undivided devotion to Christ. Not only do male and female together reflect the image of God, but their coming together in a marriage relationship to bring forth new life is used in scripture as the deepest and most intimate analogy of God's relationship with his people. Throughout both testaments, God and his people are portrayed as husband and wife or as groom and bride. The creation account found in Genesis lays out this gender-based matrimonial picture and sets the stage for the final eternal union of God and his people, of Christ and his bride, described in Revelation. The church must continue to proclaim the truth of God's intentional design for marriage and sexuality. The two sexes, male and female, are created in his image. 
and marriage is the union of one man and one woman. The modern transgender movement is systematically working to dismantle the reality of two sexes, male and female, as the Bible and the world have always known this to be. If the transgender lobby succeeds, there will be striking consequences for individuals, marriage, family, children, and society at large. End quote. Funny thing is, Focus on the Family never elaborates on what these striking consequences will be. In any case, this statement reflects similar statements from theologically conservative denominations that have issued statements on transgender people, such as the Southern Baptist Convention and the Assemblies of God. Focus on the Family's statement, as well as others, tend to use the creation story, particularly the creation of the first man and woman, as the blueprint for God's design for all people for all time. This view doesn't take into account people who are intersex. Are they part of God's design? Usually, when intersex people are brought up, the answer is that they're such a small part of the population that it doesn't matter. But intersex, broadly defined, is more common than one might think. One in 1,666 births. More common than cystic fibrosis or cleft palate, for example. But even if that weren't the case, the prevalence or lack thereof of a group of people who challenge your assumptions should make people think more deeply about these assumptions, not just discard their existence because they throw a monkey wrench in your belief system. You can't say that the male-female sex binary is God's design that applies to all people for all time. Then ignore the presence of people, real-life people, who were born outside of that sex binary. Science and lived experience tells us that even physically or biologically, the sex binary is not really a binary. If we're honest with what reality is, there are only a limited number of conclusions a Bible believer can walk away with. Either intersex people are flawed and not made in the image of God, or the creation of biological XY male and XX female as the first humans wasn't really an exclusive permanent design that applies to all people for all time. I wholeheartedly go with the latter. And that's just sex. Statements like the one by Focus on the Family conflate sex and gender without really making the case that these should be considered one and the same. And that imprecision is damaging to their argument. Nothing in the Genesis passage speaks to gender at all. The Focus on the Family transgender statement takes a descriptive passage that includes two sexes within the creation story and makes it prescriptive for both sex, and gender across time and space. You can't do that. This is referred to as a naturalistic fallacy. It's as if within the statement, as they discuss marriage and the metaphor of the bride of Christ, focus on the family is letting on that they don't really have a concept of what transgender actually means. Not to mention non-binary or other genderqueer identities. So they're conflating gender identity with sexual orientation. And that seems to be an issue for the non-affirming church. That's why statements like this conflate the two. 
even a statement by the Assemblies of God, which I won't read here, but I'll link to in the show notes. It starts out fine enough. It goes through some definitions of these terms, but then their statement on the topic runs into the same problems. The non-affirming church seems to have a solid, though biblically flawed, grasp of how they want to approach sexual orientation. But gender identity, not so much. It's likely why a lot of churches, including some theologically conservative ones who have spoken out against homosexuality, have not made separate statements on non-binary and transgender people. According to Jay Michelson, a rabbi, author, and professor at Chicago Theological Seminary, using this passage in Genesis to make the case that trans and non-binary people living out their true gender identity is sin is a huge stretch at best. And this approach ignores the examples set out in other parts of the Bible. Responding to a similar statement from the Family Policy Alliance, the political arm of Focus on the Family, Michelson states, quote, In the Genesis story, God creates human beings of male and female sex, but the creation story says nothing about gender. Notice how the end of the resolution talks about God's design for gender as determined by biological sex. Where did that come from? What chapter and verse? Remember, sex is not the same as gender. Definitionally, sex is about chromosomes. Gender is about cultural practices. Sex is what is between our legs. Gender is what is between our ears. End quote. Michelson goes on to point out examples of revered figures in the Bible that do not conform to gender norms of the time period. Quote, the patriarch Jacob, for example, is clearly gendered female in comparison with his twin brother Esau. Esau is hairy, Jacob is smooth. Esau is a hunter, Jacob stays in a tent, which is where women stay, and cooks. Esau is favored by his father, Jacob by his mom, and yet Jacob is the chosen one who becomes Israel, who follows a nation. Of course, Jacob didn't go on hormone therapy, but the way the Bible constructs his gender identity makes it very clear that at least until his transformative nighttime wrestling match, he is gender nonconforming. Likewise, Deborah the judge, who performed a male societal role. Likewise, the beautiful young David in his armor carrier relationships with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, the Apostle Paul, who rebelled against the most fundamental gender role of his time, fathering children, by becoming celibate. Likewise, the pairs of female emissaries in the New Testament, Tryphania and Tryphosa, and Yehodia and Sintish, who preached the gospel in ways usually reserved for men. On and on and on, the Bible presents heroic characters who vary from normative gender roles, end quote. The other verse used by non-affirming Christians against trans people is this. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Deuteronomy 22.5 Usually Deuteronomy 22.5 is understood by theologically conservative Christians in tandem with Genesis 1.27. The fact that trans women are women and that trans men are men is a concept that non-affirming Christians typically refuse to accept. So many of them view trans people as simply biological men and women 
who choose not to accept their birth sex, wearing the clothing of the opposite sex, or in other words, cross-dressing. But as discussed earlier, there's more to it than that. And I think such a view is dismissive of the real experiences of trans people and non-binary people. One thing to keep in mind about the Bible is that it was written during a specific time period in specific cultures by people shaped by these cultures. Even if you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, scripture is still filtered through the cultural lenses of the writers. And because of that, it should be no surprise that this verse has been interpreted in various ways by Christian and Jewish scholars over time. Common conservative interpretations include this passage being a prohibition on cross-dressing or even on women wearing pants. While researching for this episode, I fell down the rabbit hole of the internet and I found a debate among three conservative Baptist leaders arguing whether or not Deuteronomy 22.5 meant women shouldn't wear pants and even whether or not Jesus himself wore pants. Jesus! There are a lot of interpretations of the Deuteronomy passage. Rabbi John J. Tilson, the leader of Congregation Belf El Kaiser Israel in New Haven, Connecticut, a conservative Jewish synagogue, outlined several possible interpretations of this passage. These interpretations include Women should not wear war garments, which means they shouldn't fight in wars. Women and men should not wear clothing that would allow them to integrate and therefore commit adultery. Women and men should not groom in ways culturally assigned to the opposite sex, such as men wearing women's hairstyles or shaving their underarms. Women and men should not dress for the purposes of deception leading to sexual immorality. Wilson notes here that the placement of this verse is within the context of deceptive practices condemned in the Bible. Another interpretation can be found on the Transgender Christian's website, which is that clothing was understood by the ancient Hebrews in much of the same way as other items. Different kinds were separated, fabrics, seeds, animals, etc. Yet another interpretation made by conservative Baptist scholar Claude Mariatini is similar to many of the clobber verses used to address sexual orientation, that Deuteronomy 22.5 refers to men and women dressing in clothing commonly worn by the opposite sex as part of worship of the pagan gods Baal and Asherah. The prohibition in this verse is related to taking on customs that would amount to idolatry. The takeaway here is that there are several ways to interpret the passage, and there really isn't enough known to state unequivocally that one interpretation is the correct one. And because of that, it's dangerous to use interpretations with little to no support or consensus as license to treat people as anything less than a human being made in God's image. I thought this was an interesting quote by Michelson. He summarizes his thoughts by stating this, quote, Really, there are only two options when it comes to transgender people. One is to listen to what they have to say. The other is to decide that they are so deeply mentally ill that they cannot be trusted to describe their own experiences. The trouble is, the latter is simply incompatible with actually knowing anyone trans or even watching someone trans speak in the media. As kind of willful blindness, coupled with an outrageous dehumanization, 
Moreover, the overwhelming consensus of scientists agrees with what trans people themselves say. When trans people are able to live as themselves, they are measurably, objectively happier, healthier, and safer. End quote. The use of the Bible to support non-affirming stances regarding gender identity and expression is extremely tenuous at best. There are a number of figures within the Bible that are not bound to rigid ideas surrounding gender. But even if that weren't the case, and we didn't have these biblical examples, the overall message of Jesus Christ is love, and that Christians should be known by our love. Love is not condemnation. And it's a problem when non-affirming Christians seek to redefine love to the point that it becomes Orwellian. So to wrap up this two-part series, can you be Christian and affirming of LGBTQ people? Yes, yes, you can. But really, what we should be asking is not only can we, but should we? One of the knocks against Christianity, and I think it's fair, is the idea that we need religion to tell us to be nice to people. While I am a Christian, I don't think that's how religion works. If that were the case, there would be a lot more nicer people, and I wouldn't have felt the need to make this series or half the episodes I've made of this podcast. And let's be real, most of us can tell the difference between someone genuinely being friendly and kind and someone playing a role because an authority figure, cosmic or otherwise, said so. But I think that faith plays a role in how people see the world, time and space, and their place in it all. We all have some kind of worldview, whether we follow organized religion, are spiritual in some other way, aren't sure, or don't believe in any spiritualism or deity at all. And our worldview guides how we treat each other. If your worldview is driving you in a negative way towards other people and causing others pain, it's time to re-examine that worldview. When it comes to the Christian faith, the bottom line is this. If you're using the Bible to figure out what groups of people you can treat poorly and still get into heaven, you're doing this whole Christianity thing wrong. You might as well stop now because you've completely missed the point. I don't have any great segues today, but on a much, much lighter note, Zach and Elle go Hollywood as they review the 1997 animated film Cats Don't Dance on the latest from Short, Colorful, and Loud. It's a fun and excellent episode as always, so be sure to check it out. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or most other podcatchers, or go to shortcolorfulloud.libson.com for all episodes of Short, Colorful, and Loud. You know you want to. And for all of the wonderful creative work of Flying Machine, including all of our podcasts and blogs, go to flyingmachine.network. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and links are right there. Subscribing is free and easy and you can get new episodes once they drop so you don't have to wait. Feel free to talk to me. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars and leave a review and reach out on Twitter at Potstirercast 
to share what you think. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.